Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Ansaro, Managing Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. Even before the pandemic began in 2020, the number of healthcare organizations appointing chief health equity officers had started to grow. Throughout 2021 and into 2022, that trend accelerated, with announcements coming in nearly every week about the first or the inaugural chief health equity officer being created. But is this a role for one person only, or do initiatives that aim to tackle healthcare disparities and other issues really start higher than that? And how can change really be accomplished so that there is a measurable effect on health outcomes? For instance, such as reducing the gap in medication adherence among patients who are white, black, and Hispanic. In this Managed Carecast conversation, our guest is Dr. Sachin Jean, the president and CEO of Scan Group and Health Plan for the past two years. We talk about how this Medicare Advantage plan went about to improve the medication adherence in vulnerable populations, taking cholesterol, diabetes, and blood pressure drugs. The former Caremore CEO tied 10% of his senior manager's annual bonuses to how well this gap was reduced. In this talk, I ask him about why his CEO job description includes the task of reducing healthcare disparities, a recent article in Harvard Business Review that describes this effort, and more. Welcome to Managed Carecast, Dr. Jane. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. Great to be with you, too. It's been about two years since you began leading Scan Health Plan, and your appointment came shortly after the murder of George Floyd in May of 2020. And between that and everything else that came to light during the pandemic, a lot of healthcare systems and organizations began an even deeper look into the effect of racial and ethnically based healthcare disparities. But before we get into the details of our discussion around that issue, I want to point out something to our listeners that I noticed when I was doing my research about how you're described on the website. It says that you are charged with leading the organization's growth, diversification, and emerging efforts to reduce healthcare disparities. And I have to admit, I have not often seen emerging efforts to reduce healthcare disparities baked into a public description of a president or a CEO. Why is it important for a president and CEO interested in this issue, no matter whether we're talking about a healthcare organization or any organization interested in improving diversity, equity, and inclusion? Why is it important for that to be part of a job description of a president and CEO? Because I think people pay attention to, you know, where these kinds of agendas reside in organizations. Um, You see a lot of organizations that are hiring Chief health, you know, chief health equity officers or diversity and inclusion officers, and while that's a step forward, um, I think it's a signal to the organization that it's an initiative, it's a project, uh, it's it's someone's job, as opposed to acknowledging the fact that it's actually part of an enterprise-wide strategy that has to be owned at the very highest levels of the organization. And um, you know, I think we have a lot of work to do. Uh, we have a lot of work to do from a scan historical perspective, but we also have to do a lot of work to do from a, you know, I think societal perspective as far as righting wrongs. Um, I think it's easy sometimes to think, well, there was, you know, the civil rights movement in the 60s and 
you know, we were able to kind of create a level playing field through, you know, legislation. And that's been, you know, more than 70 years ago. But I was, I was reading a, um, a new biography of Malcolm X uh, just last week. And, you know, the author does an incredible job of just painting the picture of the world in which he was growing up. And the, the one statistic that really stuck out to me was the, the number of members of the Ku Klux Klan at its height in the early you know, 1900s. And I think most people would be shocked to hear that the membership had swelled to about 3 million people. And so if you think about the fact that there were 3 million people in this country at one point um, who believed that you know, people were unequal and built a society around the notion that people were unequal, less than, then the cycles of, of, of behaviors that follow from that um, and the perpetuation of those inequities is, is incredibly deep. And so I think any civic leader in 2022 should include as part of his personal job description, trying to reduce you know, emerging efforts around healthcare disparities or any kind of disparity. Um, I happen to work in the health sector, but you know, as an American, as a person who lives in this society, you know, thinking about you know, this issue, it has deep roots and it's all of our job to really dig in and, and address those roots. And that, you know, I, I see that as a big part of uh, my mandate as the leader of SCAN. So I kind of went big, but now to go small for a minute, you took over SCAN and you and your team began looking at medication adherence rates in your members. And you just published an article in Harvard Business Review about that effort. What did you notice between your white members, your black members, your Hispanic members? Yeah, I, I think it, it underscores the importance of not just collecting you know, kind of data around performance by race, but also looking at it and using it to drive strategy. And what, you know, very simply, we, we looked at our data and we saw that we had good medication adherence rates across all of our population, um, over 80% uh, across all of our members. But when you looked at the, the rate by race, um, you saw a pretty significant disparity between our Caucasian members and our African-American members and our Hispanic members. And um, for us, that represented an opportunity to right some wrongs. And, um, you know, most people say, oh, medication adherence, medication adherence is just one health plan quality measure. What's the big deal about medication adherence? Well, the big deal about medication adherence is that medication adherence is associated with lower rates of strokes, heart attacks, uh, you know, other types of cardiovascular events. And so our view is that you know, one of the most important levers that we have to, you know, improve the health of the populations that we serve is actually um, driving greater medication adherence. And so we committed uh, last year to reduce that disparity by, um, you know, more than 20%. Uh, we actually reduced the disparity by 35% when all was said and done. Um, but it was, you know, an all-team effort. It was a, an organization-wide effort, something that I think required um, doing something as bold as tying executive compensation to whether or not we actually achieved that goal. Because otherwise, organizations set goals, right? Every year, there's organizations set goals. You hit some goals. You don't hit other goals. And that's, you know, people just kind of accept that as, you know, kind of business as usual. Um, but we wanted to make this real, especially at a time when, you know, you see all this virtue signaling by healthcare organizations around the country. Oh, we care about healthcare disparities. We stand with Black Lives Matter. 
Um, you know, we condemn the murder of George Floyd. All those statements are nice, they're appropriate, they're timely, but when you actually look at the underlying commitment that follows from it, what's different in these organizations, you know, six months later, a year later, 18 months later, and, you know, as I predicted at the time, no, there's nothing different. You know, the, the organizations are the same. Some of them have changed their name. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, the, the underlying commitment to causes of social justice are, are roughly, you know, the same that they were before any of this happened. And so um, I believe our job is to really weave this into our culture. Um, you know, we're a company that was founded in Southern California, one of the most uh, racially and, and ethnically and you know politically and socially diverse uh, places in America. And our job is to not just you know kind of reflect the diversity of this population, um, but to actually rise to the level of, of serving people in the way that they want to be served. Um, you know I, I don't uh, I, I don't want to let a cat out of the bag prematurely, but you know I will say one of the areas that we've focused a lot on going into this year's annual enrollment period, is um, you know thinking about how to make sure we're equitably serving uh, you know people who are gay, lesbian, um, uh, transgender, and making sure that you know older adults who who identify in those categories, uh, LGBTQ plus, uh, you know, as they say, um, uh, and and meeting their needs differently. Um, again, there are far too many sub segments of the American population who've had to hide, who've had to go underground, who've uh, had to deny their race, uh, deny their identity. Um, we want to make people feel uh, comfortable being exactly who they are um, by acknowledging it and and serving them in ways that you know represent the the, the diversity that they um, uh, that 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 they reflect. You tied ten percent of your senior managers managers annual bonuses to how well they reduced those uh, differences in adherence rates. What were some of the specific actions that managers took to do that? In your article, you describe, I think, some very personal efforts by executives rolling up their sleeves. Well, for one thing, we recognized that, you know, kind of, we thought the way we were going to close these disparities was to just do more of what we already do, right? More telephonic outreach, more patient counseling. Um, and then we realized that there were limits. There were a reason that those tactics don't work equally well for all people. Um, and we realized we needed, you know, racially concordant pharmacists um, to be able to serve patients and talk to them in ways um, that uh, acknowledge cultural differences that may exist and different belief systems that may exist. Um, we recognize the value of presenting information people in, in alternative formats, um, developing photo novellas uh, for people to help them understand why they should take their medicines uh, as directed. And then, you know, for people who had barriers, you know, to getting their medicines, um, you know, sometimes people don't have access to pharmacies in their neighborhoods. Um, you know, we did things like getting medications, you know, into people's homes or delivered to them uh, to help drive adherence and, and an understanding of the importance of these things. So, uh, again, I think one of the key lessons from the adherence field is, you know, one size certainly does not fit all. Um, and, uh, you know, I would say, the, the tie back to the compensation really prompted a lot of creativity when people realized that their literal paychecks depended on whether we, you know, achieve this goal. Um, there's a lot of creative thinking. And, you know, if I have one hope coming out of this program, this is one initiative in one organization in one region of America, it's that, you know, more organizations will look at what we're doing and they'll go to their boards, they'll go to their management teams and say, hey, 
let's make this real. Let's let's make it matter. Um, I think the symbolic value for employees, the symbolic value for members, that these are things that organizations care about, generate you know incredible amounts of goodwill. Um, but also, I think you know beyond just being the right thing to do, I think creates and demonstrates real leadership. And I'm I couldn't be more proud of our team, our board, our management team um, for really kind of lining up around. You also did work internally and you changed some recruiting, did you not? You made special efforts in that area. Can you speak about that? We did. I mean, we we recognized that, you know, we needed to be attractive to people who, you know, pharmacists from different ethnic backgrounds who wanted to serve their communities. And, you know, people, when I talk about this, will say, oh, you know, but there's a shortage of, you know, Hispanic pharmacists or Black pharmacists. And my answer is always the same when I get that. My job isn't to solve the country's problems, but my job is to make it a more attractive job or you know, employment opportunity um, for people of color, from people of diverse backgrounds. And there's certainly enough uh, for scams. Uh, and I, you know, I think if more organizations you know, stopped looking at you know, national trends and just said, hey, I just need to be good enough to, to be an attractive employer for you know, people from these you know, different communities, I think, you know, we will do away with some of the traditional excuses that we tend to hear from people about about this issue. I think sometimes some leaders might be scared off by the idea of getting buy-in from their employees and their staff within their organizations. Did you have any issues around that or was that a concern? And if so, how did you address it or how should yeah, organizations this, address it? This is a really interesting topic. And I I'm gonna I think that healthcare has regressed into a what I think of as like the buy-in bazaar, um, where everyone feels like everyone needs to be on board with everything before we do anything. And you know, when you study great leaders in history, uh, they weren't concerned with bringing everyone along. They were concerned with doing the right thing, and you know, operating with a high degree of moral conviction. And um, that's the kind of leadership culture that I'm I'm trying to drive at Scan and and more broadly in in healthcare. You know, there is right and there is wrong, and you know, the fact that we have disparities and grave disparities in this country is wrong, period. You know, and if people want to say, hey, it's not really our job to fix that, they have every right in the world to go work at a different organization. And some have, um, candidly. Uh, but that's, uh, that's their prerogative, uh, just, as long as, just as it's my prerogative to keep driving an agenda of social justice and you know, righting wrongs um, within the walls of, of the organization that I lead. And does this philosophy expand to vendors and contractor partners, you know, bringing them along with you? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think we have, um, we're in the process of collecting data on our vendors and um, the extent to which, you know, they're focused on diversity. But at the end of the day, the thing we care most about, you know, I think it's easy to kind of get into this virtue signaling game. Did we, did we, did we buy our, you know, shoelaces from a diverse vendor or not? I mean, and give yourself a check mark if you didn't. Um, I think the thing that we care most about is do our, our people from diverse communities empowered with an equal opportunity to live healthily and live well and live independently. And that's the, you know, that's the output. And um, we're responsible for making sure that the output of our activities is just. And you can get really focused on this input stuff. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, the outcomes that, that we're tracking are, are people healthier? You know, are they having fewer strokes? Are they taking their medications as directed? Are they, do they have equal access to the kinds of resources that 
every member of our uh, of our organization does. So the tie back to bonuses is that now a um, a permanent fixture feature at scale? Yeah. So this so, so this year, you know, we're we're looking very closely at flu vaccination rates in the African American community, uh, and there is a there is a tie in there. And so again, we are actively working to make this a continuous part of the fabric of our organization. You know, we we actually have. I would say our, our bigger tie-in, you know, while there's a there are company goals around the flu vaccine, our I think our bigger effort is really around building products for diverse communities. And I I reference that, you know, uh, our focus on the the gay, lesbian, uh, you know, and uh, transgendered community, bisexual community. So, you know, I think we're we're getting there and we're really trying to, you know, make sure that we're building offerings that are, you know, attractive to a diverse group of of, of stakeholders. This just came to my mind since you're looking at the LGBT community and you serve Medicare Advantage. What are some of the unmet needs in that population if they came of age in an era where their needs were not addressed by healthcare? Well, you know, there's so much you know shame and denial that has existed in that community, and so um, you know, increased attention to you know behavioral health and you know psychological safety. Um, there's a, a number of Patients who've been brutalized by the healthcare system that did, that frankly did not accept them for who they are, um, and so they they need access to networks of providers that are you know affirming of their sexuality. Uh, they need access to services that are affirming of their sexuality. So those are the kinds of things that we're we're very focused on. I want to touch on one other thing you have talked publicly about the idea of social determinants of health really just being an issue of poverty in this country. When I look at studies from Europe, studies conducted in Finland, they don't really talk about SDOH as a factor there. What do you think healthcare organizations need to do? Or is SDOH for some people just more virtue signaling, as you put it? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm really glad you brought up the cross-cultural comparisons because I think they're really like eliminating, right? And, um, you know, when I was an economics 101 student, they taught us about something called the Gini coefficient, which is, you know, a measure of income inequality in, in, a, in a country. And we're a country with a high degree of income inequality. Um, and, you know, the healthcare sector has enough difficulty delivering healthcare, and now it wants to kind of extend into you know, doing other things. Look, it's been a big part of SCAN's history, and it's a big part of how we approach serving seniors. Um, you know, we have food programs, we have housing programs, we've got um, a, a new medical group focused on people experiencing homelessness, we've got transportation programs, we just made an investment in Safe Ride, which is a you know, non-emergency medical transportation company. So we're doing a lot in the space, because I think it's important to do a lot in the space. But I, But I would say, the bigger issue that we struggle with as a country is the fact that we have a lot of people who, you know, age into the last years of their life with little savings. And, um, and so, you know, all of this infrastructure has to kind of dive into the last minute um, to really, uh, you know, support people when in fact, you know, we have a, a poverty problem in this country and, you know, let's just call it what it is. Uh, we have poor people who can't buy food, <laughs> who can't, you know, afford their own transportation, who can't buy air conditioners for their homes in the summer months and, you know, get dehydrated. And then we pay a lot to the healthcare system when, you know, people suffer bad outcomes and bad consequences, you know, from those things. And, you know, we'll pay up for a $400,000 you know, intensive care unit stay 
but we're not going to necessarily pay for you know someone's uh, air conditioner. And I think that that that's wrong. I mean, that's just it's a misallocation of resources. And I think one of the challenges we have is whether you're for profit or not for profit, healthcare is a big business in this country. You know, most organizations measure their size and scale with a B, not with an M, <laughs> um, meaning you know they're in the billions. And most organizations' boards see bigger as better, and that is the source of our problem. You know, we should be thinking about how do we get smaller. If, if you're if you're the dominant healthcare system in a in a particular geography in a state, the question shouldn't be how do we acquire more hospitals and acquire our medical team. The question should be should be how do we obviate the need for services through creative partnerships so that people live healthier and longer. And so I think. You know, there's this whole dialogue around, you know, no margin, no mission in American healthcare. Uh, that, you know, you know, it's the ultimate conversation stopper when you're in an organization and you're talking about profit. And you're, you know, do we make too much money? And it's like, oh, no margin, no mission. What if your margin? What if your mission is really unjust? You know, if your mission is to provide healthcare services, you should be asking yourself the question: Is our mission actually to keep people healthy? So they don't need your healthcare services, and maybe be there when they need those services, but ultimately try to put yourself out of business. I think a little bit. Of, I wrote the Harvard Business School case study years ago with Michael Porter on on MD Anderson Cancer Center, and um, you know the one great thing about that organization is that it seeks to make itself obsolete. You know their mission is to eradicate cancer. Their mission is not to you know their mission is not to perpetuate itself at all costs, and I think. Healthcare in its transition from a cottage industry to big business has in many ways lost its soul. Uh, it's not about keeping people healthy. It's not about obviating the need for services. It's about keeping beds full, it's about keeping operating rooms humming. It's about having a, a, hard, a large amount of fixed infrastructure and being able to spread it out over the largest number of patients possible. That's, you know, those are the same techniques and strategies, you know, I, I read about in business school when I was learning about. Nestle and Craftsman and Sears. <laughs> um, we need a different set of rules for healthcare business, a uh, different set of objectives, a different set of metrics by which you know we we measure ourselves. And to bring it back to the starting point of this conversation, that's why you know we're looking at disparities elimination and reduction in in disparities as a core purpose of leadership in an organization, as well as you know mission in the organization. Are there any final thoughts that you want a listener who is a healthcare executive to walk away from to, to have in their pocket? Yeah, you know, you know, I increasingly think about the challenge of why more organizations aren't doing more, right? Why, what makes it so hard to be a leader, in, change leader in, in American healthcare? And I think it's, it's because it's a lonely task. It's because the person in the, in the, in the staff meeting or the, or the management meeting that stands up and says, we should be doing you know, something different is always kind of the outlier. Um, they're always the lonely voice in the room. They're always the the weird one in the room. And why are they weird? They're weird because they're alone and they're saying the thing that everyone's thinking or believing, but they have the they strangely have the courage to say it out loud. And um, I think the next time that person stands up in your meeting, standing up next to them and saying, "I agree," as opposed to waiting for that awkward moment to pass and going on. And we've all been there. We've all been there. We've all been that person. And we've all been the, the person who just kind of let the awkward moment pass. But I think our job is to rally around and next to, you know, people who are trying to 
do the right thing, say the right thing. They may not have the right words for it, but I think we tend to pick on people's delivery to the exclusion of actually listening to the message and the underlying sentiment. And I, I do think that that is the work ahead for us is, um, is supporting the, the courageous few who are willing to kind of stand up and, and speak truth to power. That's a great comment. Not too many people are comfortable calling out the emperor with no clothes or the elephant in the room. And when they do, it's often in a moment of passion. And like you said, the delivery might get all a little twisted and funky. So thank you for joining us. This was a really interesting conversation. No, thank you. It was great to, great to meet you and uh, appreciate your interest in our work. For all of us at AJMC, thanks for listening. To learn more about these issues, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.